Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. Uh, John chapter 15 for our time of study in the Word this morning. Uh, For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 15, verse 12. And my goal today is to cover verses 12 through 17. And the title of the message this morning is The Lover Calls Forth Love. The Lover, who is Jesus, calls forth love from his disciples. Thus far in John 15, we have seen Jesus teaching us that he is the true vine and that we are the what? We are the branches, and Jesus has called us to abide in him and to allow us to abide or to abide in him and to allow him to abide in us. And he has told us that apart from him, you and I can do absolutely nothing, but he's told us that if we do abide in him, we will bear not just fruit, but much fruit. He's given us practical insight into what abiding in him entails. In verse 9, he calls us to abide in his love. And then he says to us in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He also teaches us in verse 7 that part of what is entailed in letting him abide in us is allowing his words, his gospel words his words of truth to abide in us. And also, um, we are to ask whatever it is that we wish from him and receive what it is that we ask. And in the process, find ourselves bearing much fruit and show so, uh, so showing ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Jesus looks back on all that he has said in verses 1 through 10. And he says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. How many of you want to experience that joy in your life? The very joy in the heart of Jesus inside of you. Well, everything he has said was with the intent that this would be our experience. Many saints throughout church history have experienced this very joy that Jesus is speaking about. And Hudson Taylor, uh, the great missionary to China, was one of them. Uh, He was a missionary to China who passed away in 1905. And as many of you know, Hudson Taylor bore much fruit for Christ's kingdom, and he saw Uh, thousands of souls saved through the decades of his ministry. And Hudson Taylor would have told you that John chapter 15 was one of the most important passages that shaped his life and his ministry. If you read his biography, you would find that there was a point in his ministry where he found himself overwhelmed with his duties and the trials associated with his ministry, and he found himself on the verge of a mental breakdown due to spiritual 
discouragement. During this time period, he wrote these words to a friend. He said, and I quote, I cannot tell you how I am buffeted sometimes by temptation. I never knew how bad a heart I have. Often I am tempted to think that one so full of sin cannot be a child of God at all. May God help me to love him more and serve him better. You ever felt that way? During the season of discouragement, Hudson Taylor was reading a letter from a friend who was sharing with him how he had learned in his own life how to live the Christian life. And here was his friend's strategy informed by Jesus' words in John 15. Quote, to let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification, abiding, not striving or struggling, but looking off unto him, trusting him for present power, resting in the love of an almighty Savior, unquote. Upon reading these words, Hudson Taylor felt as if scales fell from his eyes, leaving him with the most encouraging vision of Christ. And later he described that moment by saying, and I quote, I saw not only that Jesus will never leave me, but that I am a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The vine is not the root merely, but all root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, and fruit. And Jesus is not that alone. He is soil and sunshine, air and showers, and 10,000 times more than we have ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. Oh, the joy of seeing this truth, unquote. And the truth Hudson Taylor is speaking about is twofold, that Jesus, number one, is infinitely more than his people need, and number two, his people are forever united to him. Based on this realization of the Savior's fullness of provision, Hudson Taylor delivers this helpful call to all of us straight from the text of John 15. He says, and I quote, let us then not seek, not wait, not pursue, but now accept by faith the Savior's word. Ye are the branches, unquote. Did this realization by Hudson Taylor turn him into a passive let go and let God kind of Christian? Not at all. In fact, finding his rest in Christ left Hudson Taylor with enormous amounts of energy from Christ to now put into serving the cause of Christ in China with a greater energy and passion than anything that he had ever experienced before. I don't want you to get wrong what I've just read to you from Hudson Taylor. Elsewhere in the New Testament, 
We don't find this in John 15, but there are places in the New Testament where we are actually called to seek and to pursue and actually to strive. But our problem is that we often seek for things that God tells us that we already have. And we spin our wheels striving for things that Christ has already accomplished for us, like our justification, for example. Or we strive to earn God's love when Jesus tells us, you already have it. Or we strive to gain God's favor when the Bible tells us that Jesus has already obtained that favor for us. Or we strive and labor to arrive at some place where we finally feel accepted by God when Jesus tells us that he himself is that place. And he calls us to just abide and remain and stay in him. If we would learn to rest in Christ, if we would learn to rest in the atonement that Christ has accomplished for us and rest in the righteousness that Jesus has already clothed us with, if we would rest in the salvation and the power that Jesus has already strove to bring to us and simply abide in his love and in his grace and in his forgiveness when we fall short, then his joy will be our strength as we pursue and as we strive for the things that we're actually called to pursue and strive for. Does that make sense? And according to verses 1 through 11, if we do that, we won't just bear fruit or even just more fruit, but we will bear much fruit and thus we will glorify our Father who is in heaven. And our passage for today is going to bear this out even further as Jesus kind of shifts our focus a bit onto the topic of love. Back in verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, abide in my love. And then he says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to elaborate on two key elements in those verses, telling us more about his love that we are to be abiding in and drawing strength from and reminding us to walk in this love toward one another. And the way we're going to break down our study of the passage uh, this morning, if you have the hard copy of the notes with you, is we'll observe seven pronouncements by Jesus to encourage his disciples and to encourage you and me to love one another from the vantage point of abiding in him. Seven pronouncements by Jesus to encourage us to love one another from the vantage point of abiding in him. And the first of these pronouncements, let's word it this way. My commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. Observe what Jesus says in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. For starters, 
uh, let's appreciate how contrary it is to modern thinking that Jesus would even command us to love. For there are people today who would say love can't be commanded. Back in 2011, Dr. Deborah Annapol wrote for Psychology Today magazine, and she said, and I quote, we cannot command love any more than we can command the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain to come and go according to our whims. You cannot dictate how, when, and where love expresses itself, unquote. Well, Jesus can command the wind and the waves of the Sea of Galilee. So it's only fitting that he presumes to command love from his disciples and from us here in this verse. And he even dictates how, when, and where this love is to express itself in our lives, right? Evidently, love can be commanded. And a person can evidently love on command when that person is in a relationship with the commander of love, Jesus Christ. And speaking to his disciples here, notice that Jesus doesn't say, this is my advice, or even this is my earnest plea. No, he says, this is my commandment. He's posturing himself here, as the boss of these disciples, as one who has the right to tell them what to do and how to live their lives. And he wants them to know that he's commanding them to love. And his words here teach us that we love best when we are positioned underneath the loving authority of Jesus and living by his commands. Jesus' command to his disciples here is that they love, and the tense of this verb indicates that he's calling upon them to love one another right now and to keep doing so continually. And he's commanding them, look at the text, to love one another, how? Just as I have loved you. He doesn't say love one another as others are loving you. And let that be your standard. How are people treating you? Just make sure you treat them the same way. Uh, No, love one another. How? As I, just as I have loved you. Now, on one level, when we look at these extra words, it raises the bar of this command to an impossibly high standard to actually love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. But I'm actually not sure that this is how Jesus wants his instructions to fall upon our hearts and our ears. Jesus wants his disciples and us to be, to know that we're loved by him and to be so blown away by how he has loved us that we feel liberated in being loved by him to love others in the same way. Jesus has loved his disciples by spending the last three years of his life with them. He has taught them. He has poured himself into them. On this very evening, he has girded himself with a towel and he's 
wash their feet and he's told them to do the same thing for each other. He has loved them day in and day out with the truest and the purest love that these men have ever known. And he has loved them with the perfect balance always of grace and truth. And when he calls them here to love one another as he has loved them, you can kind of split what he's saying into two things. To Peter, for example, Jesus is saying this, Peter, love John, your fellow disciple, the way that I have loved you. And he's also saying, love John the way you've seen me love John. You know, Peter, how much I love each of your fellow disciples so manifest my heart toward them in the way that you treat them and love them. And I call upon the rest of you to love Peter the way that I've loved you and love Peter the way that you have seen me love him. Nothing will make you men feel my presence with you any better than when you are recognizing me in each other as you love one another just as I have loved you. All in all, Jesus wants their love for one another to be organically shaped by his love for them. And this is so against the way you and I naturally operate. What we normally do is we check out how another person is loving us and then we try to match that standard and we expect them to meet us on the 50 yard line and we'll meet them there but I'm not going any further than the 50 yard line but Jesus is saying no I want your love for each other to be shaped by my love for you not other people's love for you so in order for these disciples to love others as they should they're going to first have to think about Jesus and all the ways that Jesus has first loved them and then they will love others from the wellspring and from the pattern of how he has loved them. In fact, you and I, even this morning, should read Jesus' instruction here and realize how true it is that unless you have experienced personally the love of Jesus, you will never be able to love others truly. It'll never happen. And this is true for two reasons. The first reason is that only love can give birth to love. Only love can awaken love. And one can only give to others what he himself has received. So until you have personally experienced the love of Jesus, you will not have that kind of love to pass on and give to others. But the second reason is this. If you don't allow the love of Jesus, which you desperately need, to come into your life and meet your deepest needs, then with hungry eyes, you will turn to other people and demand of them that they be to you what only Jesus could ever be to you. And with this mindset, 
you will almost certainly crush the people in your life with your expectations or with your angry disappointment whenever they fail to live up to your expectations. This is a liberating path that Jesus is paving for us. Here in verse 12, he's essentially saying, I've loved you. Now I want you to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. That raises a question, and that is, how has Jesus loved his disciples, and to what extent has he loved them? This brings us to the second pronouncement by Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another from the vantage point of abiding in him and abiding in his love. Let's just word this simply here. Pronouncement number two, my love for you is the greatest love of all. My love for you is the greatest love of all. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. It is here that Jesus points out the ultimate way that he's going to be showing them his love, and that is by laying down his life for them at the cross. And he's going to be doing that within the next 24 hours. And he wants them to know here that as far as love goes, the love that he is going to be showing them is greater than any love that they could ever find elsewhere even better than any love they could ever give to themselves. So at the very least, in making this statement, Jesus is not just reminding his disciples that he loves them. He's flat out telling them that there's no greater love to be found anywhere than the love that he has for them and that he is about to show them. And he is also telling them that there is no extent to which they need for him to go on their behalf, that he is not willing to go on their behalf, as they're going to see in the next 24 hours. There is nothing that you and I would ever need Jesus to do for us that he would not do and did not do for our ultimate good. There is no links that Jesus is not willing to go on our behalf. I should add that the Greek word that is translated friends here is the word philoi. Philos is the Greek word here. This is one of the Greek words for love, and it speaks of the love of affection and friendship. So you could translate Jesus here as saying, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for those he loves and who love him with the love of genuine friendship. Which sets us up for what he says next in verse 14, when he says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We read that statement and ask, what is Jesus saying by this? Well, let's consider a couple things. First of all, what has he commanded them to do? Back in chapter 14, verse 1, he literally commanded them to find rest for their troubled hearts 
by believing in the Father and by believing in him. Then in chapter 15, Jesus has commanded them to abide, to rest, to remain in him and to allow him to abide in them. He has commanded them to abide in his love. He has commanded them to ask whatever their heart desires and prayer. And then in verse 12 of our passage today, he's reminded them of his commandment that they love one another as he has loved them. In other words, he has commanded them to know that he loves them and to experience his love and then to love one another in a way that resembles and is birthed from his love for them. And he says, those who are my friends do exactly these things. Secondly, look at Jesus' statement again. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is indeed a conditional sentence, but it's not as conditional as you might think. Notice that Jesus does not say here, if you do what I command you, then you may get to be my friends. That's not what he says. As if their friendship with Jesus is based upon their obedience to his commands. No, he says to them, you are, present tense, you are my friends. If, or we could translate this as since, or given that you do what I command you. And this would make sense to us, I think. To be friends, two people have to have common interest and a common agenda that unites them. So Jesus rightly expects those that he is going to die for and a friend to operate consistently with their common agenda that they have with Jesus that unites them to him. I should also say that Jesus' statement here reminds us that all friendships are not just friendships between equals. Usually you have peers that you strike up friendships with. But then there are friendships between someone in authority and someone underneath that person's authority, like between a king and someone in his realm. In such a relationship, the person in authority shows his love by using his authority wisely and only for the good of the person that he has a friendship with. And the person under their friend's authority shows their love by honoring the authority of their friend who's in authority over them, right? You put what Jesus has said in these two verses, verses 13 and 14 together, and here's what Jesus is saying. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, and you show yourselves to be my friends by being united in my mission and purpose by keeping my commandments. On one level uh, of analysis, this is a, an odd thing for Jesus to say at this moment. 
It's an odd way for Jesus to describe his disciples as keeping his commandments on an evening where they're all going to fall away from him. And Peter is going to deny him three times with a curse and with an oath. This will not be a glorious night of obedience for these men. But Jesus' words to them here in verse 14 are not merely intended to be a description of their present. They are also words of destiny describing what he is going to make of them in the end. Over time, Jesus is going to grow these men into men of obedience. And by the time Jesus is done with them, he will see to it that each of these men walk before him perfectly in the age to come when he has fully sanctified and transformed them. Jesus will see to that for them, just as he will for you if you belong to him. In Proverbs, it says that he, would, he who would have friends must show himself friendly. And Jesus has done that in being willing to lay down his life for his friends But he's done more than that, which brings us to the third pronouncement of Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another from a position of abiding in him and abiding in his love. Number three, the third pronouncement is basically this. I have called you friends and told you everything I've heard from my father. I have called you friends and told you everything I have heard from my father. Observe what Jesus says in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. You might want to write down uh, John 13, 13, where Jesus spoke about how his disciples called him Lord, which is the Greek word for master. And in verse 14, he acknowledges that he is, in fact, their master, or Lord, and two verses later in John thirteen sixteen, he spoke about how a slave is not greater than his master. But here in verse 15, Jesus is saying, no longer do I want to speak of you as slaves, and here's why. The slave does not know what his master is doing. And the master slave relationship the master owes the slave no information other than what the slave needs to know in order to perform his duty the master owes the slave no vision about the bigger picture of what he's up to and the rationale behind any instructions that he might give to the slave But this is not the way Jesus has behaved toward his disciples. Listen to what Jesus says as he continues in verse 15. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Let's cherish for a moment where Jesus says, I have called you friends. It's one thing to be a friend of Jesus. It's another thing to be called a friend by Jesus. 
It'd be one thing for Jesus to say to me, Milton, I'll be your friend, but let's keep our friendship a secret. I don't want anyone to know about our friendship because it will hurt my reputation. If he said that to me, I'd be like, I understand. I understand. I'm good with just being your secret friend. But Jesus says here, I've called you friends. In other words, when speaking to you, I call you friend. When speaking to my father, I refer to you as my friend. When speaking to others, I want you to know that I speak about you as my friend. When I was a kid uh, growing up in my parents' home and I did something stupid, which happened often, uh, my dad, I would hear my dad look at my mom and sometimes say to her, hey, honey, look what your son, look what your son did. But then on another occasion when I would do something good, my dad was happier to claim me as a son. I was his boy, his son. And I knew my dad was kidding, so I never uh, took that personally. But guys, think about the night in which Jesus is saying this to his disciples. This is going to be the worst night of spiritual failure in their lives And Jesus knows their failures already in advance. And yet here, he's calling them his friends. Why does he do this? Well, because it's not them perfectly obeying that makes them his friends. But it's what he has done for them that makes them his friends. In the first place, he's laid down his life for them. Secondly, he has called them his friends with an effectual call that actually makes them his friends. And thirdly, he has told them everything that the father has told him to tell them. He's kept no secrets from them. We see this toward the end of verse 15 where Jesus says, for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Is it not true that the essence of friendship is self-disclosure and sharing with openness? You can measure the depth of your friendship with the person by the degree to which you feel free to confide in that person And the freedom they feel to confide in you. And Jesus is saying here, when it comes to confiding in you, I want you to know that everything that I have heard from my father, I've made it known to you. I've held nothing back. My father and I have a relationship and he tells me everything. We have no secrets between us. And I have made known to you everything that I have heard from him that he wants me to tell you. Now, granted, these disciples don't understand a whole lot of what Jesus is saying to them. But he has told them so many things about himself and about the Father and about salvation. He has told them in advance about things that are going to happen in the future. And he will even have the Father send the Spirit to them to help them to understand the things that he is currently saying 
to them that they don't understand. And he has even confided in them his feelings and told them, for example, in John 12, 27, that his soul was troubled over his looming death. Think about that. Jesus is the God-man, and he has shared his feelings with his disciples. And in verse 11 of this chapter, he's told them that he wants his joy to be in them. This is not the way that someone who is merely a slave master relates to his slaves. This is the way a friend treats a friend. So you put everything together thus far and you realize how it is that the disciples have become Jesus' friends. And they didn't become his friends by doing what he has commanded of them. They became his friends because he first loved them and called them his friends and laid down his life for them. And he has made known to them everything that he has heard from his father And he wants them to know that for their part, they manifest that they are friends of his by doing what he commands of them, namely just resting and abiding in him, believing in him and his father. And it is his befriending of them that will turn these men into men who even want to obey his commands from a heart of love. I am so thankful that Jesus doesn't wait for us to become perfect before he befriends us, aren't you? He befriends us in our brokenness, in our imperfections, and even in our sin. And he dies for us and brings us into relationship with himself. And he goes public with his relationship with us and he confides his heart in us and he loves us and it is that friendship that transforms us over time into the men and women that we ought to be and long to be the initiative of this friendship was with jesus from the outset and if that hasn't been abundantly clear up to this point it's kind of going to leak out a little further now as we come to the fourth pronouncement of Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another from a vantage point of abiding in him and his love. Pronouncement number four, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You did not choose me, I chose you. Observe what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 16, saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus is saying here, our friendship is not one that you initiated. Our friendship is not one in which you chose me and I simply responded by deciding to let you have me. No, our friendship is the result of the fact that I chose you. Now, when Jesus says here, you did not choose me, he's not at all denying that the disciples actually did choose him and choose to follow him. He's simply pointing out that between their choice of him and his choice of them, 
It was his choice of them that was the more fundamental thing. His point here is that their relationship with him is not fundamentally because of their choice of him, but because of his prior choice of them. He chose them first, and the only reason they chose him at all is because he had first chosen them. In other words, their choice of him was birthed from the matrix of his prior choice to save them and bring them into loving relationship with himself. Does that make sense? And the same is true for us. On the day of our conversion, we chose Jesus because we wanted him more than anything on that day. But then after choosing him, we read our Bibles and realize that, oh, I guess he chose me before I chose him. And we realize from the word of God that our choice of him was brought about by his gracious working in our lives as he brought us to life and ushered us to the point of our lives where we would so desire to choose him. We learn in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world was even laid, which means that our salvation has been in the work since before even creation. And it also means that we are late arrivals to our own salvation. This means that we didn't choose Jesus because we happen to be smarter than all those dumb people out there who reject him. No, we chose him because in his sovereign grace, he first chose us and to him be all the glory. Amen. So Jesus chose his disciples and he chose us. But why? Why did he choose us? This leads us to the fifth pronouncement of Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another. Number five, let's word it this way. I appointed you to go and bear fruit that remains. I appointed you. So I chose and appointed you to go and bear fruit that remains. Observe what he says or continues to say in verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. There are three things that Jesus has chosen and appointed his disciples for. First, that they would go. Second, that they would bear fruit. And third, that their fruit would remain. And you might want to make note of the fact that the Greek word that is translated remain is the same word translated abide earlier a handful of times in this chapter. So Jesus is likely speaking of fruit that, well, he certainly is speaking of fruit that endures and never comes to an end and also speaking of the fruit of souls of men and women who themselves abide in Christ, abiding in his love once they are saved. Either way, we should notice the irony in Jesus telling his disciples that he has chosen and appointed them that they would go. Because earlier in this very chapter, Jesus has said, abide, abide in me. 
One way of translating that is stay in me. Teaching us that one of the earmarks of a true disciple of Jesus is that they settle down and stay with Jesus and in Jesus and they keep looking to him for life and salvation. So he's commanded them to stay and yet now here he tells them, I've chosen and appointed you so that you would go. So which is it? As the branches of the vine, are we supposed to stay or go? What's the answer? Yes. In fact, think about what happens to a branch of a grapevine that abides in the vine or the trunk of the vine. On the one end, the branch is attached to the trunk of the vine and is receiving its life from the vine, that end of the vine never goes anywhere, but continually abides in the trunk of the vine. But what happens to the other end of that branch when it is receiving life from the vine? When its receiving end is remaining fixed upon the trunk of the vine, what happens to the other end? Well, a branch that abides in the vine on one end begins to extend itself out and travel many feet, producing foliage and fruit as it travels out from the trunk of the vine. So yes, such a branch both stays and goes. Such a branch abides and it travels. Such a branch is resting on one end while at the same time extending itself out and producing much fruit on the other end. And this is what Jesus has chosen and appointed to happen with his disciples and with us. He has chosen for us to abide in him on the one end so that we could extend ourselves out on the other end and bear fruit for his glory. And this fruit would include the fruit of godly character. It would include the fruit of good works that we do for others. And it would include the fruit of souls that are one to Christ through our influence and brought to maturity in him. In other words, fruit that remains. In other words, it's the people who are the most stationary on the abiding end of the branch who turn out to be the most active in going and producing fruit on the other end. Is that making sense? This is what Jesus wants from us, and he wants this going and fruit bearing to be intertwined with our prayer life, which leads us to the sixth pronouncement of Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another in a context of abiding in him and his love. Number six, I appointed you to receive whatever you ask from the Father in my name. I appointed you to receive whatever you ask from the Father in my name. 
Again, look at what Jesus says in the full length of verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. Notice Jesus promise here. First of all, he says, whatever, placing no limits on what we can ask. Second, he says that it is the father that we are to be asking, revealing that Jesus obviously feels no sense of rivalry with us. He welcomes us to come to his very own father so that we can make request of the father just as Jesus has often done. And third, he tells us that we are to ask the father in my name, in Jesus' name. We would never dare approach the Father in our own name, but we can do so freely in Jesus' name, and we can make request of the Father and ask of him things that are befitting to the name of Christ or to the agenda of Christ, things that Jesus himself would ask for. And finally, Jesus promises that the Father will give to us what it is that we ask that is truly befitting to Christ's name or to his agenda. Jesus' statement here about prayer is not something different than the fruit bearing, the going and the fruit bearing that he was just talking about. It's simply another way of expressing the same thing. In fact, by tying these two things together, Jesus is teaching us that the fruit we bear as we abide in Christ, is gained only by prayer. That's his point. In fact, you can combine all that he said about prayer in John 15 thus far and realize that, as John Piper says, prayer is how we vocalize our abiding in Christ. As we ask him for what we need for life and for sustenance spiritually, including the forgiveness of our sins when we fall short and confess our sins to him. And here we learn that prayer is also something that is intertwined with not just what we do in abiding in Christ, but it's intertwined with our going and bearing fruit as we are going out and bearing fruit in prayerful dependence upon Jesus. So the abiding branch in Christ is praying on both ends of the branch, as it were, praying on the abiding end and praying on the going and the fruit-bearing end, asking for enabling to abide and to go and bear fruit. And Jesus here is saying to his disciples, I chose and appointed you into a life of praying to the Father in my name and obtaining from the Father whatever it is that you ask for in my name that is befitting to my agenda, namely for him to enable you to abide in me on the one hand and enable you to go and bear fruit for his glory on the other hand. Now, why does Jesus tell his disciples about all these things, unpacking the way that he's gone about loving them and dying for them, making them his friends and in choosing them to go out and bear fruit? Well, this leads us to the seventh and final pronouncement 
of Jesus to encourage his disciples to love one another from the matrix of abiding in him and abiding in his love. Number seven, this I command you, that you love one another. This I command you, that you love one another. You say, well, he's kind of already said that. Yeah, it's that important to him. Observe what Jesus says in verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. The Greek of this text is actually unusual. Uh, The New American Standard follows um, most of the other English translations in saying this singular, I command you that you love one another. But the Greek text actually has Jesus saying, these things I command you that you love one another. Evidently, Jesus wants them to know that all that he has been commanding of them on this night, all that he has been commanding of them in this chapter from his command for them to abide in him and allow him to abide in them to his command for them to abide in his love to his command for them to ask of the father, whatever they wish, all of these things he's been commanding of them so that this result would be achieved that they would love one another. If you and I abide in Christ as we ought, it will lead to this outcome that we love one another. For this is where Jesus wants everything to lead. It should be instructive for us how Jesus ends this section by pointing his disciples back to his desire for them to love one another He's just talked about them launching out and going and bearing fruit. And the disciples might have heard that and felt inclined to be outward focused on winning the loss to Jesus, even to the neglect of their relationships with one another. But Jesus communicates to them here that he doesn't want them to neglect their relationships with one another but to love one another so that then from the overflow of their love relationship with one another, they can go out into the world in strength and invite others into their community of love. To say it another way, Jesus does not intend for us to be an exclusive huddle of the elect few who never reaches out to the lost, nor does he intend for us to ignore and neglect each other in our efforts to reach the lost. He intends for us to love one another with the intention of welcoming others into the ever-widening circle of our relationships with one another in the community of Christ. You say, well, does does focusing on loving one another hinder our evangelistic efforts? Uh, Jesus doesn't think so. Uh, Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. One of the most evangelistically powerful things that you can do is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and walk in loving community with them. Jesus begins our passage today with the reminder of his command for us to love one another in verse 12. And he ends by reminding us of his desire for us to love one another because loving one another, us loving one another is that important to Jesus and it ought to be to us as well. As we conclude this morning, I want to just have our thoughts circle back to Jesus' desire for us to both stay and go. Jesus wants us, according to John 15, to abide in him, to remain in him, to stay attached to him. And at the same time, he wants us to be extending ourselves out in love for one another and in bearing fruit for him. The problem is that when we fail to abide in Christ on the end of the branch where we ought to be abiding, that's when we find that we're not growing and extending ourselves out and bearing fruit as we should on the other end. But when we are abiding in Christ and resting in him as we should, on the abiding end, we will find ourselves on the other end very active and extending ourselves outward and growing and bearing fruit as we should on the going end. As I look at my own life and even try to help brothers and sisters in Christ, I would have to confess that our problem is that we spend so much time going on the end that should be staying. We spend so much time roving around on the end that ought to be staying fixed upon Christ. And we spend too much time staying on the end that ought to be going, traveling, and bearing fruit. So my challenge to you this morning is stay and go. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, believe in him today. Realize that you are spiritually dead apart from Jesus and the salvation that he can bring to you. Come to the foot of the cross where he laid down his life for sinners just like you and believe in him and call upon his name. Look to him for your life and for your salvation and for the forgiveness of all of your sins that his shed blood at the cross is designed to atone for. And you can receive that even this morning right now. If you are a believer in Jesus, abide in him and abide in his love and let his good words abide in you and stay 
with Jesus and then staying with him, go and bear as much fruit as he will empower you to bear and thereby glorify your father who is in heaven. Do you want that? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, there is so much wisdom in just these few verses and we're but skimming the surface it feels like. But we thank you for speaking to us the way that you do. You, you don't just befriend us, but then you, you actually here want to talk to us about our friendship and say, hey, I've, I've called you my friends and here's, here's, here's why, because I've confided my heart and the heart of my father uh, into you. I, I've laid down my life for you. Lord, I know that all of us in this room will be tempted this week to take our hearts elsewhere to feed on some other source of provision that the world might offer us. Our hearts will rove and we'll go looking for what only you can supply. And may we in those moments hear you say to us, There is no greater love that you will ever find than the love you will find in me. Stay in me. Rest in me. Comfort your heart in my love. Believe in me. And continue to look to me as the source of your life and your salvation. And then may we feel the release as you then speak to us and say, as you remain in me, go. And you are now free to go and to bear fruit with the fruit that I will produce in and through you. There is no telling, Lord, the fruit that this congregation can produce this week for your glory if we would simply rest in you as we ought. So help us to abide in you and to abide in your love and experience your fullness to such a degree that we cannot but go and bear fruit. And we ask these things of you, Lord Jesus, in your matchless name. And all God's people said,